So in these past couple of lessons that I have been given, we've been looking into the importance of the Trinity, knowing who our God is, and how God shapes everything. And knowing Him shapes your understanding of everything. And we don't worship a God who has not revealed Himself personally. And we go into the deepest place of which God has revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself as the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we, we worship a very specific God. Not God in general. It's not just that, you know, I believe in God. But we believe in one God. The Father. His Son whom He has sent. And the preceding Spirit. So the Trinity is not just one perspective that we can view God. Here's God like a diamond and one of the facets is one of the ways you can see Him as the Trinity. No. Who God is is Trinity. Okay. And that's important for your faith as you relate with God and as you come to worship God. Because what you worship shapes who you are. You become what you worship. So in the last message, in the last lesson, we were looking into the relations of the Trinity, how they relate with one another. And if you remember, we talked about mutual endowment, that each one indwells the other, the Father and the Son, and the Spirit, the Son and the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit and the Father and the Son. And how that uh, affects our salvation and how we should look at our salvation and think about our salvation and what good news and sweetness this brings to our salvation. Uh, that God exists in a mutuality of fellowship and communion of love eternally. If you remember, we talked about the, the Cappadocian fathers and uh, the settlement. And I'm just bringing these things as a way of re- reminder and review because it's been a month since the last lesson. But remember this, that the persons are what has been called the subsistences or the hypostasis that which lines under and one thing I wanted you to remember from that settlement the Cappadocian settlement and what was incorporated into the Nicene Creed is this reality that the most foundational thing that you can say about God is the three persons existing in relationship okay There is no God in general behind the persons. That would be a fourth thing. No, the foundation, that which lies under, the hypostasis, that's what the word means. Most foundational thing that you could say about God 
are the persons in mutuality of love and fellowship. The oneness, the one essence is the relationship. It's not a simple divine essence attached from the persons. That would be a fourth that would be a fourth thing. No. It's the persons in relationship. They're one in love. They share everything, even to their own essence, their own being. Okay? And this shapes the way that we should think about our salvation. One of the implications is we ought to think of our salvation fundamentally as being united to God, a union that's been forged in the Son. When we're united to Christ, we're united to all who God is. Okay? And it can be hard for some, for, for some of us that have been in a Reformed context with an emphasis, remember I, I, I touched on this last lesson, where the, where the emphasis is on representative, substitutional, legal terms. Okay? In other words, word, phrase like, he in my place, or him for me. Okay? Absolutely. Amen. But what we may miss is he in me, in me, and I in him. Okay? Which is the foundation of the representation and the legal benefits of the gospel. Okay? If all I have in my mind whenever I think about the gospel is the doctrine of justification or representative legal terms as good news, then I eventually will think of a distant God. Okay? That the Father is the one to be appeased only. That the He sent the Son to do a transaction. But in that way, we're just being moved around. And then what, what do we get? We get God's favor. But when union language is the foundation of your understanding of our salvation, then what you come to see in Christ's incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father is that we've been placed into Him and He takes us to the Father so that your life is hidden with Christ in in God. Okay? And if we think that the Father is distant, we'll begin to think of a different God. Okay? If we think of that the Son only came to do the Father's dirty work, 
that the Father didn't come down. Now, we're good and we're right to distinguish the fact that the Father didn't come and die on the cross. The Father didn't come become human. Right? The Father is not the Son and the Spirit's not the Son of the Father. And and we're right to make those distinctions. But remember, mutual indwellment. So that as the Son comes, as the Son comes to us and manifests Himself to us, He says things to us like, I'm doing all that, that, that I see the Father doing in me. Or it's not I who speak, but the Father who speaks in me. I have come to do the Father works, which He is working in me. In other words, the Father is dwelling in the Son and doing the works. Okay, so we can rightly say that the work of Christ is just as much the Father's as it is the Son's, even though the Son is the primary actor. Okay? Listen to this. This is God's testimony. So, remember, mutuality, indwellment, every work that the Son does is God's work. Everything that the Father does is God, all of God's work. Everything that the Spirit does is all there's a mutuality of sharing, remember. So that we can read in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God, God, speaking of the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It wasn't just the Son's work of reconciling. Or Colossians one. Verse 19, it pleased the Father that in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhood should dwell. And through Him, remember the subject here is the Father. The Father's doing each one of these verbs. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All things through the blood of the cross. The cross is the Father's work too. Listen to, oh, and you know what? Jesus says to his disciples right before he leaves, and I think this is the reason why he wants to impress on his disciples' minds this reality that the Father himself Loves you. Okay? That when Jesus shows up, it is the love of the Father manifest. In other words, it's not that Jesus has to twist the arm of the Father or bend the will of the Father in order to love you. No, Jesus is the manifestation of the love of God toward you. Listen to Thomas Goodwin on this verse, his commentary. And he's speaking to believers that have a tendency to talk about the Father in distant ways. You are deceived, Christ says. It is otherwise. My Father's heart 
is as just as much towards you and for your salvation as mine is. Himself, of Himself, loves you. And the truth is that God took up as vast a love unto us of Himself at first as ever He has borne us since. And all that Christ does for us is but the expression of that love which was already taken up originally in the Father's own heart. Thus we find that our out that love we have for Christ, thus we find that out of that love He gave Christ for us. Christ adds not one drop of love to God's heart, but only draws it out and makes it flow forth. And so, I hope that in the last message that what was impressed upon you was that our salvation, our identity in Christ depends upon the oneness of the Trinity. You remember in John 10 when Jesus is telling his disciples, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And my Father's hand, you're placed into my Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so, believer, you who have been united to Christ, in order for you to be severed from God, think about it. In all of the works of God, in the Father's ordaining, decreeing, in the Son's accomplishing, in the Spirit's applying, there's all these unions being forged. Okay? There's all these unions being forged such that your salvation has been tucked away into God. So that for you to lose salvation... God would have to not be God anymore. And this is what we get in our union with Christ, who is united to the Father. And when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, to be with us forever, He's taking all that Christ accomplished and all that the Father has decreed and making it yours. In order for you to lose salvation, God would have to take, strip the Spirit out from you. Christ would have to descend back to the grave, and the Father would have to rescind His eternal decree. Amen. This is our salvation, and it's in God. That's why this is so important that we look into who is our God. This lesson, I want to now look into another reality in the relations of the Trinity. So we looked at, we looked at mutuality. So think of the preposition in, okay? That the Father in the Son, okay? This indwelling, okay? 
Now I want you to think of the word from. Okay? The preposition from. There is an outwardness in God. In God. There is this from self. If you've heard of the word aseity in theological textbooks, that's what the word means. A-say from self. Okay? In the eternal relations, the Father begets His Son. The Son is begotten, not made. Okay? So there's this fromness that the Son has. And the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. The Father's not begotten. So the Father's not from the Son. The Son is from the Father, and the Spirit is from the Son and the Father. And this is what I want to look into with you, and how this, again, affects our salvation. Uh, And it's good news. So, let me summarize what have been called, these are called the eternal processions. Okay, procession going forth, eternal. Meaning this has always been the case in God. It's not something new. It's not something that happened once in time. But the Son is eternally begotten and the Spirit is eternally proceeding. Okay, let's look at the Nicene Creed. Um, I'll, I'll read the beginning uh, of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of of the Father before all ages, before time. There is this giving of life from the Father to the Son. That's why we have the name Father. What is a Father? To give life, to love. In both of those, you see this outward movement from the Father. And then we read, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father. There's this fromness. And it seemed to appear so important to these, to the early church that they formulated it into the Nicene Creed. Is it biblical? Is this what Jesus reveals to us? Go to go to John one. 
in verse 14. Now, in the first verse, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so we know that this Word, who we know to be the Son, who is Jesus Christ, that the Son is God. And we know with God. But what about from God? Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And again in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has come forth and made Him known. Declared Him. And what about the Spirit? So we see begottenness here. So we see a procession. What has been called the procession of generation. Okay, that the Son proceeds from the Father. How? By generation. That is, eternal generation. Not made. What about the Spirit? Go to John 15. And verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. I believe that Jesus, what he is saying here is that the Spirit who proceeds from the Father eternally. So he's rooting the promise of him sending the Spirit, the Helper, in something further back into God. The procession of the Spirit. And the promise of the Son and our salvation in Jesus Whenever we read the eternally begotten Son from the Father, that promise is being rooted back into something before time that is in God. Okay? In other words, it's not as if the Trinity, the persons, took a vote and said, and, you know, all right, who wants to be the one who is sent to accomplish. Okay, who wants to be the one that applies this salvation? Who wants to be the eternal decreer? No. It makes sense because this is who God is in the eternal relations. That the Son is from the Father and the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. Therefore, therefore, and you can read this in Ephesians 1, 
the way it reads in order. You see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All of, all of God's economy of salvation evolves around each of these persons. Okay? The Father decreeing and sending the Son to accomplish. And whenever the Son is a, has accomplished a finished work on our behalf, us being united to Him, taking us back to the Father, the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply the finished work. You ever wonder why Jesus says that the Spirit can't come yet until I ascend to the Father? Why is that? Why can't the Spirit descend now? Or while, while Jesus was in his earthly ministry still? Here's why. Because he hadn't died yet, and he hadn't ascended yet. In other words, there were two things that needed to be accomplished on our behalf before the Spirit could come and apply those two finished works. So if the Spirit came, He, he would only bring a partial salvation. So it's better that I go to the Father, is the promise. So, get this. God is intrinsically outgoing, ecstatic, from self. He's not, our God is not a vacuum. He's not sucking in. Our God, as characterized by the testimony of God's word, is like a fountain, like light. In the, in the writings of the, the Cappadocian fathers, in the, in the writings specifically of Gregory of Nyssa, there's others, but Gregory of Nyssa, which was one of the Cappadocian fathers, um, emphasize this fact about God has a spreading, effusive goodness in his being. The God in, in his being is like a fountain. And the way that they spoke about it and the way, the way it's incorporated in the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light. Two words. Hypostasis and another word, ecstasis. Okay? Hypothesis, ecstasis. Hypothesis. Now, we looked at that word before. Does anyone remember what it means? Under. Yeah. Hypo means under. Stasis means to stand or exist. That which stands under. Okay? That which is foundational. Foundation. That which stands under. Okay? Ecstasis. Ex. What does ex mean? Exodus. Exit. Out. Right? Stasis. 
to stand, exist. So they would say this, God's hypostasis is in ecstasis. Okay? That God's being, God's, the foundation of who God is, is out from self, outward. Okay? God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the eternal relations of the Trinity, the pro- eternal processions. Okay, why is this important? That God is out from self. It shows us that God is intrinsically life-giving and loving. Giving life isn't something new in God. And loving isn't something new in God. He's always been giving himself to his son. And in that eternal relation, the spirit goes forth to share that love. Let me read something that Michael Reeves wrote. In this book, The Delighting Delighting in the Trinity, he has little pause points and moments of history. And he writes about uh, theologians from the past that have uh, been a great gift and benefit to the church and the writings. And one he particularly writes about, his name is uh, Richard in the 12th century, 12th century theologian. This is what it says. Richard, Richard argued that if God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving, since for all of eternity, before creation, he would have had nobody to love. If there were two persons, he went on, God might be loving, but in an excluding way, an ungenerous way, kind of like a clique all to themselves. After all, when two persons love each other, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everything else and everyone else. And a God like that would not be very, uh, would be very far from good news. But when the love between the two persons is happy, healthy, secure, they rejoice to share it. Just so it is with God, said Richard. Being perfectly loving from all of eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy through the Spirit. It is not then that God becomes sharing. Being triune, God is a sharing God, a God who loves to include Indeed, that is why God will go on to create. His love is not for keeping, but for spreading. So God is intrinsically self-giving. And this is the way that God's glory is described When we, when we read about God's glory, it's often coupled with the theme of light. Okay, for instance, in 
uh, when when Moses asked to see God's glory, uh, and, and then afterwards his face shone, was bright, or in Ezekiel uh, when uh, he talks about the appearance of the glory that came, and that it was like light and a rainbow around the throne, and such was a, the appearance of the glory of God. Or in Revelation, there will be no need of sun or moon, for the glory of the Lamb shall be its light. Or, um, for God has shown into our hearts what is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory. So glory and light. What is light? Light gives itself. Light emanates outward. It radiates. Okay? No wonder the Bible describes God's glory this way because of who God is and what His glory is. Light goes forth. Okay? So whenever you think about light, the theme of light biblically, and God's light, don't think like a flashlight. Okay? Flashlights, you direct it at something to reveal that thing over there. Right? Small little flashlight. No. Think of the sun and the dawning of the sun. Okay? It reveals itself. God's light reveals Him. And as the sun rises, it reveals everything else. So, when we read, for instance, God is light. We might think that what that means is that God exposes sin. Now, absolutely true. And that's something that is further down the line of the reality God is light. Okay? Well, let's go there. John 1, uh, 1 John 1. First John. First John 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, what message? What's the message he's talking about? He's talking about the proclamation that we just heard in the first few verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and handled with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father. And manifested to us. So this is the message. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. The 
In other words, when we read God is light, it's not like the flashlight. It's like the sun dawning. Listen to uh, Thomas Goodwin on this. The sun doth not only enrich the earth with all good things, but it also gladdens and refreshes all with shedding immediately its own wings of light and warmth, which is so pleasant to behold and enjoy. And thus doth God and the Christ, the Son of Righteousness. In other words, light is something that is giving of itself. Okay? So Jesus is called the light of the world, which shines into the darkness and not overcome. And this really does form for, a, form for us in our understanding what is sin. Sin is not being like that. Sin is, not give, is, is to yourself taking for yourself, not giving of yourself. Love. The fulfillment of the law. And that's why John goes on to describe sin in that very way. That you can't know God if you don't love your brother. If you know, if you do know God, you would love your brother. Because such a sight of this God would affect you so to love your brother. And so, and so when you read God is love, God is light, it's the same reality of God going forth. Every good and perfect gift comes from who? The Father of Lights. And where do we see this most clearly about our God is in the person of the Son, the one to whom the Spirit shows and directs our vision, the one of whom this Father sent to make himself known. Just look at Jesus' life. He didn't stay in heaven. He went forth. He became man. He became part of this creation. He entered into the virgin's womb. Now think about that. He didn't, he didn't go to a new set of dust. We were all created from dust, right? If he was made from new dust, he wouldn't be united to us. But no, there was an umbilical cord. He became one with us. He came to us. In love. And just look. He said he came to seek and save the lost. He was lifted up that he may draw all peoples to himself. He touched the leper. He associated with the prostitute and the tax collector, the sinner. He's like the, he's the good shepherd that when just one is out in danger, he goes forth. He goes out. 
He goes to the cross. And where do we, why do we see the glory of God there? He gives himself. And I believe this is why Jonathan Edwards was so affected by these sorts of thoughts that he wrote, he wrote, God just shines forth. He just shines forth. It's not even that he shines forth in order that the rays may be reflected back to him. But that's just who God is. He shines forth. In fact, the word hallelujah, hallel, means shine forth. Hallelujah, shine forth, God. And in the ministry of the Spirit, when the Spirit indwells us, He makes us conform to this image and makes us like God and go forth. You're the light of the world. And so Jesus told the disciples, Peace be unto you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said to this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, that they may go out to the ends of the earth to participate and continue what already began in the fellowship of the Trinity, this outward movement of love. Until that day that the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Let's pray.